Great, great. So I want to, you know, focus that I want to bring today is the proactive 12 steps and uh, and how it came about and uh, and how it's related to what you guys do. Um, I'm a therapist and I was interested in for being interested for a very long time in how people can do wonderful stuff without therapy. And, uh, and, and lots of people have gotten a lot of good stuff out of 12-step groups. Um, and I wanted to understand better how that works. So if you ask some of the people who go to 12-step groups, their whole idea is essentially it's about let go and let God. And I have a deep trouble believing that as a way of helping people. I don't believe in God, and I don't think that is really what happens. In fact, I think if that were the case, the 12 steps would be step one, pray, and step two, pray, and then essentially uh, everything would happen simply through prayer. And the 12 steps, actually, most of the steps are things that describe an actual process of understanding what it is that people do and uh, understanding yourself better in order to change. The only thing is it's kind of the process itself is kind of hidden behind language that does not make it easy to see where the healing comes. So what I have put my attention to is to, from the perspective of a therapist, to understand what it is that is happening behind the words and describe a process where people can actually heal themselves. And so the, pro the process that I describe in the proactive 12 steps is very much parallel to the traditional 12 steps, except it doesn't have the language of God and it pays attention to what actually happens when a human being starts to pay mindful attention to what they're doing. And in paying mindful attention, discovers the areas where, you know, they block themselves, they get in their own way, and discovers where the, uh, the, the factors that push them to be in their own way keep coming back. So it's it's a it's a process of self-discovery, of mindful self-discovery, and of changing what you're doing. Um, I have, as you noted, written a book about it, the Proactive 12 Steps. And of course, I'm happy for people to 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 buy it and read it, but I also have put the steps themselves and uh, the description of what each step does on the website in the proactive12steps.com. Uh, so that people can actually read it on their own and discuss it with friends. Um, most people go to regular 12-step groups simply because that is what is available. And if you have to uh, find a place to find kindred spirits, what exists is 12-step groups. So people can go to 12-step groups but then form a smaller group to discuss what happens in the proactive 12 steps in order to get a different light on the process of healing and find a way 
to um, to actually work deeper on their recovery. So I want to take a little pause right here and uh, see um, if you have any questions, either of your own or from the people uh, who you know in the uh, in your group, and uh, to take it from there. Thank you, Serge. Could you talk more about mindful discovery? Would you? Or why did you find the language difficult? So, what about mindful discovery, and why is the language of the steps difficult? The traditional steps talk essentially in terms that are either religious or moralizing. They talk about character defects. Um, they talk about flaws. They talk about uh, essentially a sense of doing right and wrong. And so even though a very strong component of the steps is to say, it's not that you're a bad person, this is an illness or, you know, something of that nature. Uh, essentially, it presents your behavior in moral terms. And, and so the idea is, um, in some way, that what's wrong with you, what's happening is you're not a good person. Um, paying attention mindfully to what happens means not having predetermined notion of I'm doing something right or I'm doing something wrong. And there is, um, you know, God in the sky who's observing me and, uh, you know, punishing me if I'm doing something wrong and uh, uh, holding me in the palm of their hand if I'm doing something right. But it is really about I'm the center of it. You know, I'm the center of it, not in the sense of I'm the center of the world. I'm all important. I'm creating everything. But paying mindful attention to what happens in life allows you to keep your eyes open to see what it is that happens and what it is that you do that might influence what happens. So it's not a question of uh, some preconceived notion of doing things right or doing things wrong, but it's paying attention and making little experiments like, hmm. When I do this, this is what tends to happen. If I do something a little bit different, here's what happens. And so it's about finding essentially uh, your ability to change how life unfolds based on what you're doing. And um, a very key part of it, which I think a part of the 12 steps that I find very inspiring is the serenity prayer. So if you don't think of it as a prayer where you're asking somebody who is all-knowing and all-powerful to give you wisdom, to give you courage, to give you serenity, but you really think of it in terms of, I'm in the middle of learning from trial and error. And learning from trial and error, I will find some areas where um, mm, if I give myself a chance to have a little bit more courage, to try something different, I might find ways to change something. Um, in the trial and error, you find some ways in which, well, I keep banging my head against the wall. So this may not be something which I can change. So that's where the serenity to accept things you can't change. And the wisdom comes again from trial and error, giving yourself a chance 
to discover what you can change and what you can't. So it's really a process that has a lot to do with engaging with life and keeping your eyes open to see moment by moment what's happening when you do something so that you get better at doing the things that work for you. So that's what I mean by a mindful process. And the difficult language as well, uh, Serge? Well, the difficult language is, to me, something that is putting it in terms of, um, um, again, morals, okay? Because it obscures what happens in life. So I don't mean that the language itself, that the words are big, but I meant that the language itself hides the reality of daily life. You wake up in the morning and, um, you know, what do I do this morning? Okay, do I stay in bed? Do I grudgingly kind of rush to go to work? Do I have time to stretch? Whatever it is. You know, these are very concrete moment-by-moment questions. Uh, you're in the evening. You're bored. What do you do with your boredom? Uh, you feel down or you have, uh, you know, you, you start to have things that are happening inside that are difficult, difficult feelings. What do you do then? Okay, so usually these are prompts that prompt you to act out in the, your favorite way of acting out. Um, if you just think of it in abstract terms, you say, oh, I'm acting out, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You don't see the link. So the, the thing that I'm talking about when I talk about being mindful, talk about being proactive, is the simplicity of saying, for instance, right now, this evening, I'm being bored. And when I'm being bored, and I don't know what to do with myself, um, you know, there's kind of a, a mental meltdown that I'm trying to avoid. And uh, I'm very tempted to then do things that are probably not what I want to do in the long run. So what is happening right now? Paying attention to the feelings of, at that moment. You know, just paying attention to, okay, so, you know, I'm kind of not comfortable in my skin right now. Uh, mm, I, I feel jumpy. I feel nervous. Okay. And, and so either you say to yourself or you call a friend and you describe that. You describe what is happening in the moment. Okay, you pay attention to what's happening in your body. You pay attention to the experience itself. Um, as opposed to just going into, uh, mm, just this is a difficult moment, or, um, you know, I pray that God helps me or something of that nature. Okay, just staying in the concrete. There's a message in the chat, Serge. So do you think relapse is caused by boredom as well, like the majority of the time? Um, You know, the word boredom is an interesting one because boredom 
in everyday language is like, oh, I'm bored. So, you know, um, it's just, a, it's an all it's all, all encompassing category. Um, boredom more often than not is great discomfort and kind of a numbing to the discomfort. So I wouldn't say relapse is caused by boredom, but I would say that relapse is caused by a discomfort that is not faced as a discomfort. Um, and so that's a trigger. And the trigger calls for, you know, is so unbearable that you go to the coping mechanism of choice. And um, if you're able to realize what's happening right now is um, there, I, I feel something that's really unbearable and that something unbearable uh, makes it very hard for me to stay present. I want out, anything out, you know, like somebody lift me out of here, um, which is then where you go to the coping mechanism of choice. And if you happen to have a friend that you're sharing that with and you say right now, you know, I feel like I'm almost creeping out of my skin. I can't bear it. You know, I'm both blanking out and it feels very uncomfortable. And the friend is there and listening to you and say, yeah, yeah, you know, I hear it. I've been there. And um, I've, I've had these moments where it's really so hard for me to stay here, you know, and I want anything just to get me out of here. I want, you know, just whatever. Um, and, but, you know, and I know I remember when it happened to me, it was like, you know, say, um, like wanting to jump out of my skin. And so a person goes and say, yeah, 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 that's exactly what's happening to me right now. And you notice what's happening when you have this kind of paying attention to it. The, the focus of the attention actually is changed. The focus is what it feels like inside at this moment, and you're sharing it, okay? So during this time, this is like you're on the ledge, and there is somebody with you on the ledge sharing it and understanding but really paying attention to what's happening right now. And as you do that, then it's possible to feel connected to the other person. And it's possible to feel connected to I'm a suffering human being, you know, and uh, then you come back essentially more to your senses. Okay. So it's going to the heart of darkness, you know, the heart of the present moment that is unbearable and staying with it with company makes it more bearable and makes it makes you realize that at this moment you're a suffering human being connected to another suffering human being and it's possible to stay connected and it's worth it to stay connected thank you um, Susanna has our hand up hello um, Hello, Shert. Uh, Hello. Thank you very much. I'm Spanish, so sorry if my English is not that perfect. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, so many questions I have to, I, I, I feel like I need to ask you, but uh, for me right now, what I realize is I act out a lot, even mm -hmm. though I, I'm not drinking. 
uh, I've been clean for, for more than three years. And for me, the worst part of this is what can I do after acting out <laughs> to deal with the um, feelings of shame and guilt? And, and I want to add something um, to this because you already talked about reaching out and talking to a friend. And what if I cannot do that because of my CPTSD? <laughs> I can't trust people and I, well, and I, I realize right now, for example, at this present moment, um, I isolated myself at this point in my recovery. Um, so I don't talk to people privately. I just share, which is great, but I, can, I cannot um, talk to a friend in my case. So thanks for listening. Thank you. Yeah, Susanna, um, thanks for sharing. The, thanks for sharing this. Um, so two, you ask two broad questions. I'm going to answer them in the reverse order. I'm going to start with the question where you say, because of PTSD, essentially, um, I don't trust people enough to really share with them. And so I think I want to validate being cautious, you know, that um, PTSD is essentially something that's serious and that you have reason to fear. But um, the process of healing is a process of trial and error. You know, that's what I was sharing a little before about a sense of what the serenity prayer does is uh, trial and error, trying to see what you can change and what you can't. And so if you have a big distrust of people, the answer is not a leap of faith and saying, oh, I suddenly will believe that people are good and people will be, uh, everybody will be so wonderful and helpful. No, absolutely not. You go little by little. You uh, do little experiments where you take somebody who seems a little less untrustworthy and it could be uh, somebody from, say, if you attend a group in person, you've spent some time, you get a feel for somebody and you say, well, this person is maybe less untrustworthy than others. I'm going to give a chance. Uh, or you make an experiment with somebody uh, that uh, you, you see meet on an online group. And the experiment is not to suddenly share everything with them. The experiment is to just share a little bit and see what happens, to pay attention to what happens inside you as you share, and to see how the person receives it, and to see if uh, you actually feel better from the sharing or not, okay? And so baby step by baby step, you increase your experiments until you're more able to share more with more people. But what is absolutely crucial is to not uh, go into an all or nothing thing, okay? That's absurd. 
this is a, you know, part of the danger of something like, oh, I meet God and God tells me now there's nothing to fear and I let go and, you know, I open up. Uh, PTSD taught you to be cautious. And so to undo it, you proceed cautiously, little by little. Okay. So I'm going to take a pause right here before going to your other question. And um, and I'm just realizing right now that the other question slipped my mind. So, Susanna, if you don't mind um, going back to the first question you were asking. Sure, sure. Okay. Uh, the other question, thank you very much, Serge. I appreciate it. Um, the other question was about uh, the aftermath when you already... Uh, Oh, yes, yes, yes. So something about how to do with the feelings of shame and guilt. Yeah. So it's great to recognize that shame and guilt are part of a cycle. So it's not just shame and guilt in the moment, but really, um, you I'm sure you have noticed of how that's a cycle you act out, then you have shame and guilt. And then the shame and guilt become so strong that in a way they kind of contribute to bringing you to acting out. And because in, in some way it creates relief and then you go into shame and guilt. So it's great first to really think of shame and guilt as being part of a pattern and a cycle. And so it's not that what you're doing, that your addiction is just the moment, say when you're acting out, but addiction is the whole thing. Addiction is your life in that moment, which is, you know, the cycle itself. So when you are experiencing shame and guilt, it's really great to remember, oh, this is simply part of the cycle. So if I do what I usually do, which is to beat up on myself through the shame and guilt, all I'm doing is actually reinforcing the cycle and priming up for the next acting out. And so you need to break the cycle. And to break the cycle, what you need to do is to say, hey, I welcome the shame and guilt. You know, the shame and guilt are another part of me. Okay. And the language of shame and guilt is about I'm such a bad person. But really, you know, it's actually giving me another point, another point of view, okay? And, um, and just kind of take it in. Try and say, I want to be able to realize that I can survive the shame and guilt, okay? And all of the, the, the whole concept, basically, of the cycle is stuff that is unbearable, you know, either you have a trigger that is unbearable and you act out, or you have shame and guilt that is unbearable and you act out. So the process is to realize that the triggers or the shame and guilt, anything that feels unbearable is something you can bear. Okay. And so it is going to be easier to do that if you're not on your own with it. Again, you share it with a friend when you, the trigger happens or you share it with a friend when shame and guilt come in because then you can exchange notes about what it feels like inside. 
and you realize, oh, your attention can be put into describing and experiencing what it feels like inside. And it helps you remember it has happened before, you've survived it, you will survive it. And if you make less of a drama of it and you write it, you actually will have a better outcome. So that's my suggestion. Another question, Sarge, in the chat. How has your recovery and the others around you changed since you wrote your books? So asking me about my recovery, um, I'm, not, I'm not in recovery uh, in addiction. I'm a therapist and I got into the 12 steps in the sense of understanding what it is. <clears throat> that the wisdom of the 12 steps had for people uh, about recovering, but also about making changes in their lives. So originally when I wrote the book uh, and the proactive 12 steps, it was to bring the wisdom of the 12 steps to people who were not in recovery. And to say there is actually the, you know, the, what the 12 steps are is they don't talk really about recovery. They talk about a process that things, that people do, uh, you know, they don't talk about alcohol other than first step or 12th step, you know, they're not talking about the relationship with the addiction. They're talking about how to lead your life. And the genius of the 12 steps is to say, if you change your life, then addiction basically no longer has the uh, fertile ground in which it festers. So, the 12 steps for me is about, for all of us human beings, paying attention to how we lead our lives and how we all have coping mechanism. We all have pressures. We all have fault lines. We all are vulnerable, okay? And how to deal with that. So since I wrote it, you know, um, I've had tons of people who are in recovery who then said to me that actually it has been helping them in their recovery as an addition or replacement to the traditional 12 steps. So um, uh, in a nutshell, my take on it is being inspired by what people in recovery have done, uh, translating it and deepening it through my understanding of my own process and the process of my clients in therapy and seeing that it actually can be very helpful to people who are in recovery themselves, in addition to everybody else. So, uh, you know, in the sense, your question, if I take your question a little differently of how has it been for me? If um, uh, when I've, you know, the writing the 12 steps for me uh, is not just something abstract is Writing it is paying attention to my own process, what happens with my client that I know. And in some way, it's a very intensely personal process of I'm not writing as a Martian talking about what happens to human beings from Earth. I'm writing as a human being who's going through this own process and finding it very helpful. But I just, you know, for myself, I do not describe it as a classical process of recovery, but a process of mindful change. Is it just your steps you think help, Serge, or is there other steps as well that 
because whatever about not having the God thing, um, if you went to the hassle to, to write your own steps and get a book with it, you know, do you think it's um, better that there is choice, you know, more than just the traditional steps? I think, you know, um, my goal in writing the steps is twofold. One is to give something to people that is an alternative that they can follow, but also to inspire people to say, um, you know, actually, what is, what does it mean to you? What does recovery mean to you? What does the process of changing mean to you? What does this actual step mean to you? So um, I think that what I wrote is helpful in itself, but is also helpful as something that stimulates people to say, you know, it's not because these steps are recited, you know, at every meeting uh, as essentially something that is, uh, you know, unchangeable, uh, that they describe the ultimate wisdom. They're an entry point, you know. So uh, as you go through your recovery and you talk about it with friends, discuss what it means to you beyond the wording of the traditional 12 steps or of the proactive 12 steps. Create something that is meaningful to you. You know. One more question: uh, How important is meditation in recovery? So, how important is meditation? Um, I meditation is very good. I'm, I I meditate. Okay, so I'm nothing bad to say about meditation. However, um, I think that too many people mistake, confuse mindfulness with meditation so to be mindful you don't necessarily need to meditate to be mindful is to be in a state where you're calm enough to not be in fight or flight to not be reactive to pay attention to what's happening and to have access to your thoughtfulness so that is much more important than just in a way leading your life in your usual activated way, in your usual mindless way, and thus having from time to time a moment of meditation. So I encourage people in the Proactive 12 Steps to use pauses, mindful pauses, and um, essentially to, you know, so it's not, you know, like say take 20 minutes, half an hour to meditate, but just take a moment, take 15 seconds, take a minute, you know, several times during the day, in which you say, where am I? What's happening? What's happening in my body right now? So how's my heart beating? Is my, are, is my body hunched? Are my shoulders tight? Uh, how's my breathing? And coming back to reconnect with yourself. And as you do that, it kind of breaks the cycle of being mindlessly involved in your life and reactive. Okay, so coming back, so coming back to yourself, coming back to your senses. And as you come back to your senses, uh, you have more of a chance of not repeating the default mode, not repeating what you do without thinking. Okay, and so it happens moment by moment in not repeating it, 
but it also trains you to have more of these moments in your life so that you leave your you lead your life in a more engaged and mindful way. Yeah, come back to Dave. Uh, no more questions at the minute, Serge, if you want to just continue on talking about anything at all. Okay, so um, yeah, I want to add something. So I want to add something just about spirituality. Because um, uh, what the traditional 12 steps are about is they were inspired by essentially Christian practices and lots of people go for it in terms of essentially a sense of God related, but even people who are not into God talk about spirituality. And I want to separate spirituality from religion. I want to say that one can be spiritual without believing in God and actually being pretty much down to earth. If you don't take spirituality as being, um, uh, you know, something that comes from outside, something that is being connected to the world of uh, some kind of transcendent force, but you take spirituality about having a sense of meaning and purpose in your life, uh, taking spirituality about having a sense of there's something larger than you, you're connected to other people, the value of the connection to other people, the value of um, um, of being with um, um, in a community that of kindred spirits, um, then you actually can have a very down-to-earth spirituality. And in some way to say that um, the disservice that religious speak does to spirituality is it seems to own it. And I want to invite people to say, you know, spirituality is something that human beings have a capacity for. It's part of our brain, but it's not something that you need to have dogmatic traditional language of spirituality for. It's whatever it is for you that gives meaning and purpose to your life. And uh, to not feel a sense of uh, that you're being cut off from spirituality if you don't have it in a traditional way, or even if the word spirituality is disturbing to you because of all the associations it has. So don't call it spirituality. Talk about finding what is more, what is really of importance in your life, what sustains you, what makes you feel connected to something larger, what gives you meaning and purpose, you know? And, uh, and, and that is the process, you know, in, through the process of, to me, when I wrote the Proactive 12 Steps, is it's a process that helps you discover that in your life, you know, if you want to. Uh, and certainly to not feel beholden to traditional spiritual language. So you believe you feel more spiritual after writing the, the proactive steps then? More of a connection? I feel more of a connection, you know, to myself and others. Um, I still hesitate with the word spiritual because I like it in the sense of saying it gives me a way to connect to people who think of themselves as spiritual. And I feel like I have some of the experiences that they describe as spiritual, except, you know, that's my own way of having them, that not, you know, in a traditional uh, way. 
Um, I still have some discomfort with the word spiritual because it's too often associated with dogma or with, um, uh, with traditions uh, that essentially are disconnecting us from ourselves. So I still am ambivalent, but I feel more able to claim um, the quality of the you know, search for meaning and purpose as something that is a larger category in which spirituality is a flavor of. Okay, perfect. Um, Dave is back. Are you able to come in now? No, maybe in a minute. Um, no more questions, Serge, if you want to keep going with something else. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do a closing statement. Um, and you know, I want to, um, first of all, feel, tell you that um, it feels good to see people who are um, finding a way to connect without the baggage of um, traditional religion or traditional spiritual approach and um, to find your own path. Um, as I said, I wrote the Proactive 12 Steps and I make it available to people on a website uh, for people to have it as an inspiration. But I also very much encourage you to feel that what you're doing is a process of creating moment by moment, your own path. And I'm inviting you to share it with other people, again, within the constraints of how much trust you can have with other people, as somebody mentioned before, but to encouraging you to cautiously expand the connection with others uh, to share your process with kindred spirits in a safe way. Uh, as a way to help yourself, help the people you connect with, but also in a way create something of value to the world by creating a community of people um, who are able to demonstrate an alternative to traditional spirituality and traditional growth. So do it, you know, like connect share, experiment, and support each other. I have one last question for you, Serge. Um, how has COVID impacted and changed uh, yourself, like be it your daily work or just even doing meetings like this? Or uh, Has it benefited? Has... So COVID has been a mixed blessing. You know, um, it's always hard to talk about the word blessing when something that's been, you know, so devastating in so many ways for so many people. But to recognize that even of some things that are really bad, some good things can come. Some of the good things that have come from COVID is making it more possible for people to be connected beyond the usual ways in which people used to be connected, which is just geographical proximity. And so 
um, uh, certainly one of the most wonderful things that has been happening over the past few years is the depth of connection that we have come to get from online meetings of all kinds of sorts. You know, not, I'm not just talking about recovery meetings or mindfulness meetings, but just that sense of connection, that sense of feeling part of a larger group. And uh, so by all means, that's what I would want to focus on is that uh, this has given us more of an opening to feel more connected to more people and, uh, and to really use that. Um, it has also given us a sense of what we miss by not having in-person connection. So uh, certainly, you know, stuff we used to take for granted, uh, we have come to see how valuable it is when it was missing. And so post-COVID, even more important to not just rely on these, um, you know, internet connections, but to be more connected at a local level, even very simple things, even sim doing simple things together. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and just uh, the, how the not taking it for granted helps us be more mindful with it and, uh, and, and really appreciate and savor the quality that comes from that.